What's the G7 country's latest climate agreement? And is it possible to maintain high crop yield using sustainable agricultural practices? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a science writer. Today is Wednesday, June 29th. Let's jump right into the news you need to start your day. I'll warn you that today's episode is lacking good news. Let's start with some extreme weather events. Tokyo's heat wave has officially been declared its worst since 1875 when it rose above 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius for three consecutive days. It's now on its fifth day, and just according to my weather app, it looks like it will stay above 95 degrees until Saturday. The power grid is holding on there, but just barely. As the drought continues in more than half of Mexico, President Obrador announced he will provide financial support to companies that save water in the northern province of Nuevo León. He said that while water shortages must be tackled by regional governments, the federal government will provide this incentive. We'll see if this actually happens, though, because a spokesperson for the financial minister said that she had not been briefed on this plan. And in the U.S., a Bay Area Rapid Transit, or BART, train derailed outside of San Francisco on Monday after the tracks hit 140 degrees Fahrenheit, or 60 degrees Celsius. About 50 people were evacuated. No serious injuries were reported. The Bay Area experienced a heat wave last week, with San Jose reaching 102 degrees Fahrenheit, or 38.9 degrees Celsius, and Concord, where the derailment took place, reaching its record of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit for this time of year. So, sitting in the sun, tracks got much harder than the ambient temperature, reaching 25 degrees Fahrenheit above its maximum operating temperature. Meanwhile, the lumber giant Sierra Pacific Industries closed all of its forest land to the public indefinitely, citing extreme drought and wildfire conditions. It owns 2 million acres of forest land across California, Oregon, and Washington, and usually its forests are open to hiking, permitted fishing and hunting, and cross-country skiing in parts where there's no logging. But now people will no longer be allowed in those spaces indefinitely. To be fair, the National Park Service says that about 85% of wildfires are started by humans, and the West Coast, along with several other states, is in the worst drought it's been in in 1,200 years. Time for some climate studies. A new paper published in the journal Nature Climate Change suggests tropical cyclones are now 13% less frequent than they were during the pre-industrial era in six out of the seven regions the study investigated. That means that there were about 100 cyclones on average during the year 1990 compared to an average of 80 in 2012. This is one of the first studies to look at this because there's a lack of long-term cyclone data, so cyclone trends are hard to quantify. This study used reanalysis data to fill in the gaps, a method that combines observations and model simulations. Climate change likely caused this drop in frequency because global warming is weakening two major global atmospheric circulations, the Walker and Hadley circulations. The only region cyclones have increased in is the North Atlantic, and the researchers attributed natural variability and a decrease in local air pollution to this. It's super interesting how air pollution masks warming and impacts hurricane frequency. I talked about that on the May 13th episode if you want to learn more about it. It's important to note that even though climate change might decrease how many cyclones are whipped up every year, it increases how wet and strong they are and how long they can stand on land. 
this year's hurricane season is expected to be an intense one. Another analysis has come out to say that corporations are not on track to meet their climate pledges. The latest MSCI Net Zero Tracker report, which includes oil and gas companies, determines that the world's publicly traded companies are sending the world towards 2.9 degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels. Granted, it's actually 0.1 degrees Celsius down from last year's projection. Only 11% of the 2,900 companies that MSCI looked at put in place policies that align with a 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target, which is the ideal target. 46% of companies had policies that kept warming below 2 degrees Celsius, though, which is actually higher than I would have expected. Super important caveat, though. This analysis only looked at scope 1 or direct emissions. Scope 2 and 3 emissions were not included. Scope 2 emissions are indirect emissions relating to electricity, steam, heat, and cooling processes, while Scope 3 emissions are all the other emissions released in the value chain that were not directly done by the company. Emissions associated with burning fossil fuels are considered Scope 3 emissions for fossil fuel companies because it comes from their product after they hand it off, unless they burn it in their own processes, of course. And actually, the tracker still considers fossil fuel companies top emitters, so they're not even reducing Scope 1 emissions well. The researchers say that these findings support the push towards climate disclosures for investors. Meanwhile, a new study by the French methane tracking group Kairos found that despite over 100 countries pledging in November to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030, methane is actually rising at an alarming rate. Methane is 84 times a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. The group tracks methane using satellites. Some of the worst methane-emitting countries include the U.S., Iraq, Kuwait, Algeria, Iran, and Turkmenistan. That's really embarrassing for the U.S. because despite being a rich country, we have a lot of leaky infrastructure. The main culprit in the U.S. is, you guessed it, the Permian Basin, which has increased its methane emissions by 33% between the first quarter of 2022 and the previous quarter. Most of that increase comes from small, privately owned operators that can skirt publicly disclosing their methane emissions or being required to reduce them. Now to the closest thing we have to a climate victory today. The G7 leaders announced the creation of a climate club. Woo, world leaders formed another group. With this announcement, they pledged to work together to heavily reduce road emissions in their countries by 2030 and to fully or predominantly reduce energy emissions by 2035. They commit to ending any new direct public support for the international unabated fossil fuel energy sector by the end of 2022, but this came with an exception for liquefied natural gas, or LNG, to which they said, quote, In this context, and with a view to accelerating the phase-out of our dependency on Russian energy, we stress the important role of increasing deliveries of LNG can play and acknowledge that investment in this sector is necessary in response to the current crisis. This statement is very disappointing because it goes against what several studies have said, which is that it's cheaper and better for the climate to move straight from coal to clean energy. Additionally, the International Energy Agency and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have both said that no new large fossil fuel projects should be built if we want to keep warming below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The leaders say it's a temporary response to the current crisis, but unless they put that temporariness in the new construction contracts, they will be locking themselves and producing countries into more fossil fuel use for longer. 
And that brings us to more climate fails. Those weren't even the climate fails. There's a growing concern with how many climate deniers and skeptics are in the UK Parliament's House of Lords as the Australian billionaire hedge fund manager Michael Hintz joins the group. He co-founded the Climate Skeptical Lobbying Group, the Climate Warming Policy Foundation, and he's now a Tory peer. Other climate skeptics in the House of Lords are Peter Lilly, Charles Moore, Matt Ridley, Claire Fox, and Anne Whitcomb. And many of them also have ties to that lobbying group. Former Daily Mail editor Paul Dacry, who oversaw publishing many climate skeptical pieces during his time, will also likely join the House of Lords soon. It really makes you wonder what Prime Minister Boris Johnson really thinks about the climate crisis since he's the one appointing people. The Lords draft bills and investigate public policy, among other things. Green Party MP Caroline Lucas is trying to get an investigation going into Hint's appointment. Over in the U.S., an Arizona appeals court upheld a decision by the lower court to let a mining company swap land with the Apache tribe to build a copper mine, despite it being religiously significant land for the tribe. The land under dispute is Oak Flat, and the company, Resolution Copper Mining, will likely mine for copper useful to the clean energy transition. But taking away sacred land from a tribe that has held religious ceremonies there for centuries doesn't sit well with me. The appeals court judge agreed with the lower court judge when she said that the government's obligations to protect religious diversity did not extend to the land exchange and its potential ramifications for the future of Apache spirituality. They suggest the Apache to take it up with the Supreme Court if they'd like, and the spokesperson for the tribe said they will. This should be very interesting since the Supreme Court just ruled to side with a high school football coach's religious freedom to pray at the 50-yard line after every game. Will their affinity towards religious practice extend to indigenous religious practice? We'll have to see. Time for some chemical news. A study by the Harvard School of Public Health, published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology, has found that gas appliances don't just leak methane, but also benzene and other chemicals that cause cancer. It's surprising that we're just now seeing studies on the health and environmental implications of using gas in the home, but that's where we're at. The researchers collected 234 samples of unburned natural gas from 69 homes in the Boston metropolitan area that received natural gas from three suppliers. They found 21 hazardous pollutants that are known or suspected to cause cancer, birth defects, or adverse environmental effects. This includes benzene, which was detected in 95% of these samples. While the amount of benzene presented is much lower than in gasoline, it's concerning considering that it's in an enclosed space. Americans spend more than 90% of their time indoors, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, which alone is a depressing statistic. So yeah, another reason to switch to electric appliances if you're able to. Okay, let's end on the one good piece of news I could find today. And it is a study. Research published in the journal Nature Sustainability becomes the first peer-reviewed study to show that using less chemical fertilizer still produces high crop yields when replaced with more sustainable options. The group of 24 researchers looked at 30 long-term experiments in Europe and Africa that together represent more than 25,000 harvests of six crops, wheat, maize, oat, barley, sugar beet, and potatoes. They found that a higher crop yield was only achieved by sustainable practices when fertilizer use was low. So fertilizer and sustainable practices kind of cancel each other out, which means we should use one or the other mostly. 
And the better direction to go for humans and ecosystem health is definitely towards more sustainable practices. Sustainable agricultural practices include using manure and compost, growing nitrogen-fixed plants like beans and other legumes between crops, and diversifying what grows on the same land. Reducing fertilizer use would also buffer farmers and consumers from economic shocks and supply chain issues. Right now, some fertilizers cost three times as much as they usually do, which raises food prices. And switching to sustainable practices could potentially switch agriculture land from being a carbon source to a carbon sink. And that was your climate news for Wednesday, June 29th. I'm so sorry, it was so sad. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Beckosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.